No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect us all. Uh, Today, uh, in honor of Labor Day, we have a special guest, Ruth Milkman. Uh, She's a sociologist. Uh, of labor and labor labor movements, who has written on a variety of topics involving work and organized labor in the United States, past and present. This is a great time to have her on the show. Uh, her recent books are on immigrant labor and the new uh, pre-current, whatever that is, polity, I guess, and on gender, labor, and inequality. Her early research focused on the impact of U.S. women workers on economic crisis and war in the 1930s and 40s. And we have, I have so many questions uh, for her. Unfortunately, my co-host isn't with us today, but uh, Ruth Milkman, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. That word is that you were stumbling on is precariat. It's sort of a play on proletariat that has become a buzzword in my world lately. Well, you know what I uh, I'm, I have a I have a couple of degrees in social science, so I'm embarrassed that I don't know the words. Oh no, but it's quite for, a recent. Yeah, thanks, anyway. thanks for educating me. Uh, you know, the first thing I want to talk to you about uh, is is this rise in uh, uh, the union movement. What's going on that that uh, places like Starbucks and Amazon are, yes. are, you know, there's all this union activity going on. Why do you think that is? What, what, well, what yes, seeing? I'm happy to talk about that. We're actually about our, my, um, the, the school of labor and urban studies here at CUNY is about to put out a report that goes into this a little more in detail, but, um, for labor day, but anyway, um, so there are a couple of things that underlie it, um, in my view. One is the pandemic itself, which raised um, public awareness of the plight of um, so-called essential workers and other disadvantaged workers. Um, but a bigger driver, I think, is the post-Great Recession um, phenomenon of young college-educated workers facing limited labor market opportunities in this period. And the college-educated piece is important because I think that has, is what's created the, the gap between their expectations of employment and what's actually out there. So they've, you know, they thought if they got a college education, they'd get a, quote, good job, and instead they're a barista at Starbucks or whatever. Um, and the leaders in particular of these new organizing efforts that we're all hearing about fit that profile, not always to the, the other workers, but they are the ones who are initiating it. And by the way, that same demographic was behind Occupy Wall Street a little over a decade ago, Black Lives Matter. They are the same people are the leaders, the Bernie Sanders campaigns, and now they've gotten involved in the labor movement. So, so that's a lot of it. Um, but I also need to tell you that the, while this is very visible organizing, and again, there's more public interest and more public support for unions than we've seen for a while right now, partly because of the pandemic, actually the scale of activity is pretty small. It's not enough to move the needle on the relentlessly declining rate of unionization in this country so far. 
that it could grow. But right now, that's the situation. So, you know, it's more visible than in a long time, too, because the targets are these very high-profile, iconic companies like Amazon, Starbucks, Apple, now Trader Joe's, Chipotle, you know, um, which are very visible and, you know, and also have rely a lot on consumer goodwill. So there's a lot of reasons why there's more attention to this than before, but it's not completely new. Well, you know, first of all, let me tell you that what you just described is the profile of my three adult children. I have three children, all who have college educations. Mm -hmm. Uh, One has gone back to the job that he had in high school, and he's moved himself uh, uh, through that up into management in a retail store. He worked at an Ace Hardware store when he was in high school, and now he's the manager of an Ace Hardware store. Uh-huh. Uh, another one is a server. She can't find it, you know. She can't find a job that she's at least been interested in, and uh, so she uh, works in a restaurant because it's easy and she can make ends meet. And uh-huh. the oldest one has just found her first like good tech job. So they certainly they certainly fit that profile of college educated people who are not getting what they 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 thought they would get when they got out. And for me, you know, they laugh at me because I, I said I found my first job in the newspaper when I graduated from college. I looked in the one ads and found it, you know, found a job like the, the week I got out of college and they're like, Dad, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, right. you know, in, in many not, ways, including yeah. the newspaper part. But anyway, right. yeah, the yeah. Part. yeah, it's more like what's a newspaper, by the way. But, <laughs> right. uh, uh, but, you know, it, so they certainly fit that profile. So overall, union membership is not particularly growing. We're just hearing more about it. Is that what you're That's saying? That's exactly but, right. Now, that could change. So historically, you know, it's. First of all, think about this. There's 160-plus million workers in the United States right now. Mm-hmm. The biggest um, organizing victory that we've all heard about was at the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, which employs a little over 8,000 workers. So you can yeah. see right there, it takes a lot more than 8,000 workers there. And, you know, a bunch of – there's like 225 Starbucks so far that have organized, but they only have about 20 workers in each one of those. It doesn't right. add up to much in terms of the big challenge that is out there. And, you know, it's a big country. So, again, it's highly visible for all the reasons I mentioned before, but it's not yet moving the needle on the fairly desperate plight of organized labor, which is down to 6% in the private sector in terms of the share of workers who are organized. Wow. So, you know, historically, unionization comes in big waves and – it's possible that this is the start of something like that, but it isn't that yet. And and is it historically, have there been similar economic conditions that have brought on historically? I mean, workers got tired of uh, uh, when the when unions really became big. Didn't they become big at the end of the Second World War? Or- well, it actually starts. That wave begins in the Great Depression period, and mm. yeah, there is some parallel to that yeah. with what I was talking about. Of course, people, very few people went to college then, but there certainly was a collapse of um, opportunities and a you know gap between expectations and reality for many, many people. You know, that was the biggest economic crisis in the history of the country. So, and I mean, but it was also different in that. <laughs> so that is the biggest ever surge and it continues through world war ii like you said but but um the the big difference today versus then is the character of labor law so in 1935 was when as part of the new deal we got the so-called wagner act or the national labor relations act which still is the law of the land um and that greatly facilitated the unionization that occurred in those years but now that law still exists, but it has become um, somewhat paralyzed by a lot of strategies to manipulate, delay, um, sort of cripple the machinery that it involves, and so, and which is all something employers have labored to do in the well, basically since about 1980. 
Um, and so there's a whole industry of, of they're called uh, labor consultants, but what they really are is union busters. They systematically attempt to undermine unionization efforts when they come up, and both Amazon and Starbucks have um, employed them as have, you know, it's routine. They're not alone. I don't mean to single them out because pretty much any private sector company faced with an organizing drive does exactly that. They have somewhat deeper pockets than some of the others, of course, but, you know, this is just totally normal behavior. But it makes it really challenging. So that's, I think, another reason all this is attracting so much attention because despite that, people are winning these elections, which is, you know, it's hard. Yeah, no, I know. And I was, uh, I told you this before we went on the air, I was a Teamster. I'm a former Teamster. The first decent paycheck I ever got, the first day of sick leave I ever got, the the first Christmas bonus I ever got, the, you know, was, was sure. as a Teamster with benefits. And, and I remember my company fighting it. And it was funny because we only had, we had a group of, uh, we probably had a, a business of about 40 employees, and there were only three of us that were union employees. And we were union employees because we were an affiliate of a larger company that was completely union. And because uh-huh. we were truck drivers, because we were truck drivers under that, that union contract, we were required to be union. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So and 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 even even with three of us, they hated it. They hated the idea, you know, because it they they felt it was a loss of control. And, you know, the the uncertainty. I ran my own own business for 25 years. So I understand that, too, that there's this uncertainty about, uh, you know, what the future holds for you. Um, And and, uh, no, the lack of control thing, I think, is huge. And they always. They express that quite openly. They'll say, we oh, don't need God. a, quote, third party in between us and the workers. Oh. You know, that kind of thing is the standard oh. line. Um, but, well, but workers but do let need me tell you, support. Of the 10 things that my grandmother used to tell me over and over again, uh, God bless the child that's got his own is, is one of the most important ones. You know, that, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, I ran a business for 25 years, and to this day, a union bug is still on my business card, but I ran a business for 25 years, a small business that only used union labor. And you know what? I felt good about the fact that the people that subcontracted to me got decent salaries. And, and if one of them passed away, their wife got a small insurance policy and, you know, they had decent working conditions. Uh, and, and I started out in the labor market when I was 14 years old working full time. And I can tell you, those conditions do not exist in a lot. Of, I have a lot of jobs with terrible working conditions mm-hmm. uh, because they could get away with it. So let me ask you a, a, another question. How, where, where do women stand in this movement? I know that, that, you know, nurses are unionized, uh, uh, police officers are unionized, teachers are unionized. Uh, right. Is there any difference between men and women in this in in this movement? Is it that is uh, such a great question? Um, look, so it's complicated because the labor market remains pretty segregated by gender, right? You mentioned nurses; they're overwhelmingly female. Mm-hmm. For example, truck drivers, your old job, overwhelmingly male. So, right. so it's somewhat shaped by that. So, one thing that's changed since the 1960s and 70s. There's been a, an enormous um, increase in unionization. This is the second big surge besides the one we already talked about in the 30s in the mm-hmm. public sector, especially teachers. And some nurses are in the public sector and also, you know, administrative workers for cities in, like D.C. and um, others in New York where I am and so on. Right. There's this whole. So those folks um, unionized en masse starting in the 1960s and 70s. And today, teachers, another female-dominated, though not as extreme as nurses' profession, um, make up somewhere between 25 and 30% of all union members, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. So what's, what's happened is private sector unionization has been severely eroded over the last few decades. Public sector has fairly, is basically flat. There's actually been a slight decline for various reasons in the last few years, but it's still basically 
the same as it was 20, 30 years ago. And so with that, and, and women are much more present in the public sector. So that has kind of closed the gender gap that probably existed when you started out as in your trucking job, when, when men were much more likely to be union members than women. I don't know when that was, but you know, now it, there's hardly any difference. So, and in some places, including New York, actually women are slightly ahead. Only very slightly. It's basically a, a draw. Um, one more thing, though, on that question, which is it's very interesting to me that at Starbucks, the leaders of the unionizing effort seem to be overwhelmingly female, not 100%, but probably 90%. I mean, nobody has statistics on this, but I've been watching it pretty closely, and that's, you know, very sort of stark. And actually, a lot of them are LGBTQ people who, you know, trans women and so on. So there's a whole other dimension to that particular campaign. I don't think that's the case at the other places, Amazon, Apple, and so on. But at Starbucks, it really stands out. Well, you know, that's one thing with my two daughters that I don't notice with my son. But they're really concerned about the kind of job they have, that it's fulfilling, that they have benefits that they have you know they seem to be much more than than i was i was concerned about what job paid me the most money you know mm-hmm, when that mm-hmm. that's when i started out uh but it seems that they're much more concerned about working conditions uh these days both my daughters have expressed that uh-huh. uh, and my son my son worked for uh works for a company works for a hardware chain where the employees own the company and that's important I see. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, well, uh, so the young people thing is, I can't yeah. emphasize that too strongly because if you look at surveys and, and opinion polls um, and you ask people, you know, what do they think about labor unions? Actually, the public generally is more supportive of unions than they used to be, but that support is particularly high among that generation of your children and mine too, actually. Um and and this is the same generation that, you know, first was infatuated with Barack Obama back in 2008, then Bernie Sanders. And guess what? They have a critique of capitalism more generally and of yeah. racism and of sexism, yeah. right? I mean, they they call it intersectionality. I'm sure you know. Um, yeah. So that's driving some of this, too. Well, you know what? We used to talk to talk. I mean, but we didn't walk the walk necessarily. And these kids seem to, or younger people seem to want to walk the walk. You know, I went to a large, uh, I attended a large university, University of Maryland. And if you walked in, we were all about love and, 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 you know, getting together. uh, You know, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. And Uh you could walk in the cafeteria at at Maryland and all the African-American Kids would be on one side of the room and all the white kids on the other. We talked a better game than, than we actually yeah. practice. And it seems like these people, uh, younger people, are uh, uh, more interested in actually doing what we, we always profess to do. So that's a good Well, not thing. all of them, but, yeah, I agree with that. I'm, I'm more or less the same generation as you myself, so I know exactly what you're saying. But, you know, the other thing that's changed is that the composition of this generation, and by, I mean, I'm talking about millennials, and they call themselves Gen Z, the slightly younger group, who, who are, you know, in all these social movements. It's also the climate um, justice movement is another one that they're very um, engaged in and in the leadership of um, increasingly. But um, it's a much more diverse population, that age group, than we had, and more and more of people of all ethnic ethnicities and races are going to college. So that helps. I mean, in terms of the consciousness as well as the, like you said, walking the walk, um, they grew up with this, you know, it's just sort of how it is for them. Um, they're also more educated than any previous generation. So there's all kinds of distinctive things. And I, and they're the, they're the digital natives, right? The people who grew up with the technology Mm -hmm. that some of us are still struggling to master and in your and my age groups, right? So, yeah, so, absolutely. So all these things are important. And, and the digital thing in particular, you know, they use those tools in their organizing um, quite effectively. Yeah, you know, Twitter do. and Facebook and all the rest of it. So, yeah. Yeah, we, we, just, uh, we just had a guest on our show, Brittany Kaiser. 
I don't know if you remember, she was the Oxford uh, Analytica woman that, that outed Facebook. Oh, yeah. But, uh-huh. Yeah, but she just raised $100 million in cryptocurrency for the war in Ukraine. I mean, wow. all on the internet. All I, it, this just fascinates me. But but I but I digress. And you know, remember those teacher strikes in the red states a few years ago in 2018? Yeah. They were in West Virginia, Arizona, and so on. Those were led by young teachers. They're obviously teachers are of all ages, but the leadership of that was from young people, and they organized those strikes on Facebook. I mean, initially there were these Facebook groups that you know did a lot of the the work and at first under the radar and then openly. So, you know, it's a thing. Um, and which can I just mention one other thing while I'm on that, which is that, so, so this is all in the news now, I guess those strikes were in the news too, but again, those are public sectors. So it's sort of a different animal and it's not like the high profile of Amazon or whatever. There's nothing equivalent to that. Although, you know, they got some attention, but more generally, I would say since at least the great recession, this generation has been more quietly doing quite a bit of organizing among journalists. Unionism has spread quite rapidly, especially in online journalistic outlets, but also the LA Times, historically a bastion of anti-unionism, is now union. Um, teachers, we already talked about, but also the teachers have been organized for a while, but they've become more actively militant and stuff. And um, in my industry, so to speak, higher education, Adjuncts have been unionizing very extensively, graduate student workers, um, college educated, and these are obviously educated folks, right, all the above. Um, You already mentioned nurses. That's been underway for some time, but there's just, they're they're going on strike more, and there's, that's, in my view, a whole sort of separate dynamic to do with the healthcare industry and how, you know, all the restructuring that's gone on there and all that. We could have a whole show just about that, but... But still, there's all these groups, most of them educated workers, who have been doing this for a while. And it, it's only kind of hit the media uh, pulse with Amazon, Starbucks, and so on. But it's actually been building up for a while. So this is just kind of the latest iteration of that. Well, let me ask you, because you talked about the uh, difference between uh, men and women in unions, you know, that some uh, jobs are overwhelmingly male, some are female. I, when I was in college, I did research. The Equal Rights Amendment was the uh, big issue, one of the big issues when I was a public policy student in graduate school. By the way, it still hasn't become law. But uh, I did a thing on, I did a, a research on occupational segregation. And back oh, in those yeah. days, Seventy-five percent of women, believe it or not, when I was in college, seventy-five percent of women were found in four professions. They were either nurses, teachers, domestic workers, or or secretaries. So Mm -hmm. now they're found in all 163 uh, categories that the the Bureau of Labor Statistics has. Uh, Why do they still not make as much money as men? You know, well, that is I mean, um, such a great question. A thing. It was because they were they were segregated into a handful of occupations, and right. there was always an oversupply of labor. But that's changed dramatically. Did you study with Barbara Bergman at the University of Maryland by any chance? I camp? did study with oh, Barbara I, I, She's Bergman. not alive anymore, but she was a friend of mine, and I'm very oh, familiar with her. Right? Her work, she was yeah. A heck of an economics professor. Uh, I know. I, I bet. I never saw yeah. her in a classroom, but I yeah, knew her yeah, pretty yeah. well. She was a she was a tough lady too, man. You sat up and 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 uh, 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 paid attention in her class. And I also worked a little bit with a woman named Evie DeBrow, who was okay. I didn't know her. Oh, the ILGWU person. Yeah, the ILGWU. Oh, sure. I've met yeah. her, but I never knew her well. I, Barbara oh, was yeah. a real friend. Well, when I worked at the DNC. I worked for the Democratic National Committee for four years, and and she was a fixture. I mean, you know, she right. was in there every day with her little comfortable shoes, and and <laughs> you know, and, and she was she was one of the, she was one of those people that was probably a little old lady when she was forty, but you know, when I knew her, she was in her seventies. Uh, but uh, yeah, but she was to there come back to your day. question, it's a great yeah. one about occupational segregation. So yeah. here's what's happened, basically the. 
the opening up of um, especially professional jobs like my own and higher, you know, in academia, but also law, medicine, and all that for women has happened, and and many other professions as well that used to be almost completely closed to us. But beyond that kind of elite level, in the in the bulk of jobs, there's still a lot of job segregation. So it has changed for the most educated, you know, people with advanced degrees and so on, much less so for the rest of the workforce. So it's true that you won't find, you know, women completely crowded, as Barbara's old term, into a limited number of jobs to the same extent, but there's a real divide between the kind of elite professions and the working class women who still are most likely to be in what we used to call pink-collar ghettos, you know, clerical jobs, sales jobs. Or, so, you know, so that's still there. It's just um, not everybody. So the most privileged women have kind of broken out of that, but not so much the others. Do they still use uh, bona fide occupational qualifications to disqualify women? I remember- much less so. You know, all that stuff has been challenged legally and yeah. all, but it's not really a legal story in the end, in my view anyway. I think mm-hmm. part of why it's changed so much in the professions is that the ticket to a profession like law or medicine is a credential, a degree that you get from a university. And it's mm-hmm. a lot easier to, to, you know, open the doors there than it is in the corporate suite where employers pretty much decide, you know, executives decide who to hire more or less on their own without any constraints. So like in corporate management, there's been some change, but much, much less than in those professions. Um, you know, and it's, a, and it's like more the culture than the law, although both are important. Um, it takes people time to get over these stereotypes. And it's for corporate executives especially, I don't know, there's a lot of literature on this that suggests that what you mentioned, uncertainty before, they, they're they more comfortable hiring someone who's just like them, which tends to mean uh, white male. Right. No, I Um, I get it. It My my uh, uh, my children are always saying that to me. My my daughters uh, um, who are fully liberated unless they need a couple of bucks on the side. And then 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 it's okay for dad to intervene in their lives. But they're always saying to me, Dad, we don't need to elect any more fat white guys to uh, uh, run things, you know, and I say, well, I try not to be offended by that, but uh, so I'm not sure if either one of them votes for me, but uh, uh, that that's certainly the truth. And, and um, you know, I sexism, because of the cultural aspect, that's so interesting to me because it's so subtle in so many ways. Yeah. You know, my wife worked, when I first met my wife, she worked for a defense contractor. She's now a school, li- school librarian for years. But when I first met her, she worked for a defense contractor. And these guys loved her. They always they did little things for her and they, you know, and they just always praised her, but they were never gonna promote her. They mm-hmm, were all mm-hmm. tired army colonels, you know. And there was still sort of that girls get coffee and guys right. do the work mentality. And it was crazy because they, they really liked her. But you could just, I, I used to say to her, Pat, you, you need to get out of there because they're not going to promote you. They're, you know. It's so deeply ingrained in folks. I is. think that's right. And I'm a little hopeful about this new generation, like we were just discussing, that maybe those attitudes have shifted some, although it's not 100% even there. But yeah. it's it's moving forward, though. But anyway, that's so there's still a lot of this problem out there. It's not um, as pervasive as it was, but almost, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> especially and, and in lower level jobs, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, um, yeah, we certainly we certainly still I certainly still see it. And, you know, and I have to admit that, you know, I've been a beneficiary of 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 sexism because I've hired a lot of women in my life. I don't think I've ever had anybody that worked for my company that wasn't a woman when, you know, that worked directly for me because they've always been a better bargain. You know? (laughs) Well, that's interesting. Of course, if that were true, there wouldn't be any women unemployed. You know, I mean, if, if everybody behaved like that, but you know, there is this old joke, if you want it done right, hire a woman. (laughs) But anyway, that's, well, you know, they're joke. more loyal. If you treat them well, 
they're like incredibly loyal and they work hard and they, you know, I mean, I, I just don't get it. I, I, I really don't. Uh, well, I, anyway, I, that is an ongoing concern and it's, you know, I'm sure it's part of what drives some of this, you know, the whole me too movement is another yeah. expression of, um, protest against the kinds of these kinds of issues, which is also something young women have been quite engaged right. in. So, you know, there's, um, this is a generation that really does want social change they're up against a lot in terms of actually achieving it, but they're sure trying. Yeah, I know. We aren't we all? Um, so explain to me, what do you think about this, um, this kind of emerging new technology? Is that putting pressure on the labor market and putting pressure on, on, on people the way uh, let's say the Industrial Revolution did, right? There was a revolt about uh, mechanization at one time in, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in labor. Is that same thing happening with automation? I mean, you can't even you can't even pay to have your car parked anymore. You have to go to a machine and stick the coupon in the machine. You know, right. they don't even have the poor guy that takes your two dollars. Well, not two, your twenty dollars. Right. Well, you got to go to a machine. Yeah, so, I mean, there's definitely a lot of that happening. Um, you might notice that it's happened; it's been happening for a while, and right now we have the biggest labor shortage we've had in decades. Yeah. So it's not creating mass unemployment, as some people fear. That is not what's going on. But it is changing the character of work for a lot of people. I mean, an extreme example is those Amazon warehouses where we're seeing unionization yeah. efforts, right? Um those are extremely automated in every possible way you could imagine, including they even have this automated system of um, calculating for each employee what they call time off task. So, you know, you used to have a supervisor who might like hover over you and make sure you're right. doing your job at fast enough or whatever. Now it's robotized mm-hmm. and they, you know, and they can even be fired by a robot. Like if you're not, if you have too much time off task, you can lose your job there and you will get that information electronically, not from a human being, you know, so that's like the extreme case. And one of the slogans of the Staten Island Amazon labor union was we are not robots because they felt they were being treated that way. So, you know, there are some examples of that. I mean, it's different in every context, of course, but, but automation is not a bad thing necessarily. Um, it's a question of how it's used and who controls it, in my view. Um, it, you know, it, can, it got rid of a lot of pretty awful jobs, actually, over the years. Um, the ones that robots can do for humans are not so pleasant, usually, right? So, yeah. so there's that. I mean, it, ha- it can have real benefits, but it's, it's all a question of power and who's, who's in charge and who's, deci- who's making those decisions about which technologies to use and how to use them. And right now that is concentrated in a, you know, in, along with corporate power in a relatively small group of people who don't necessarily have the welfare of workers on their, on their minds. Well, and you know, that, uh, I mean, it gets crazy sometimes. I've got to tell, since we brought up automation, I've got to tell this quick story. But I had a dispute when I ran my business with the IRS about something. And I couldn't convince an IRS agent that I was right. And he was wrong. And he said to me, we can give it to the automated decision maker. And I said, what's that? And he said, <laughs> well, we can put, this is true. We can put all this information in the computer and it will make the decision. But you have to agree to abide by the decision. And my attitude was, well, I'm losing as it is. So, yeah, what do I got to lose? And it's funny, the computer agreed with me. I couldn't convince the IRS guy, but I convinced the computer. Yeah, it was like it was they were trying to find me like three hundred dollars for for eighty dollars in missed taxes. And I just thought the fine and the penalty was outrageous. And the computer agreed. So you're right. In some some cases, it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, And well, and but, you know, there was also this these sort of fantasies that they're going to sort of take over everything, which so far have been just fantasies. Like, look at the self-driving car thing. Just a few years ago, we all thought that I actually want yeah. one. I mean, I hate driving, so and I'm getting older, so, you know, I think I would love to see that become a reality, but it's decades away, and not very long ago, we were being told it was around the corner, and, yeah. you know, a lot of these things are a lot more complicated than people realize. 
So, and the engineers are discovering that as well. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I can, I can understand if you live in New York, why you, why you hate to drive. <laughs> it's a challenge. And it's, I don't uh, like it, period, anywhere. I used to live in L.A., so which is yeah. much worse than New yeah. York, although so I don't drive in New from, York. But. Out of the frying pan into the fire. There you go. Because <laughs> right? yeah. L.A. is pretty crazy, too. Um, pretty bad. Uh, but uh, so what do you see as the future for the union? If you had to, if you had to, you know, crystal ball right now and you had to predict, oh, what God. do you think? You, think that you know, gonna, I've learned the hard way that I'm not very good at predicting. I definitely don't have a crystal ball. I'll just tell you when Barack Obama was elected president, I thought, all right, this is a whole new day. And I sort of made a fool of myself predicting a big resurgence and unionism. And I was wrong. I mean, that did not happen. And so I just have no idea. I mean, I do think it would really make a difference if there were a change in the legal environment um, that facilitated unionism instead of having the law be an obstacle that has to be overcome. Mm -hmm. But right now in a deadlocked Congress, that's not happening. You know, there is, there's been proposed legislation for many years now, but it never passes. So that would help. Um, I, you know, I think there is much more public sympathy, and that makes a difference. We have a president who's very sympathetic as well. But, again, it hasn't moved the needle yet. And I don't know. I'd like to think this is the beginning of something bigger, but I don't see it just yet. Well, I'm a member of the same club you're in, the Bad Predictor Club. Uh, the one <laughs> positive thing, the one positive thing in in my world about getting Donald Trump elected is now that nobody in my family asks for my political opinion anymore. Because <laughs> in 2016, I said, "There's no nobody's going to vote for this guy. Are you crazy?" Well, most of us were had that same expectation, yeah, and we were all I wrong. Mean, so you're not uh, alone in that one. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I've stopped making predictions as well. Um, you know, I think, where did unions, do you have any idea about this? Where did they get their bad reputation? I was I was campaigning for, for uh, Barack Obama, actually, when in, the, in his primary of his first election. And some guy said to me, he goes, well, you know, the guy likes unions. I, you know. Unions are just a bunch of guys that stand around and do nothing. And he pointed over to a couple of, of people that were working, you know, like public works guys that were working on fixing a sewer or something. And she said, look, there's six of them over there and only three of them are doing anything. You know, and I said to him, he goes, union people are lazy and they're overpaid. And I said to him, you know, nurses aren't lazy. Firemen aren't lazy. Policemen aren't lazy. Teachers aren't lazy. They're all members of unions. But where do they get that that reputation? Do you know? Well, I do. I think I have a sense of it. I mean, and again, it varies so much by age. But before I try to respond to your question, I just want to say that I just looked it up while you were talking that the latest Gallup poll says that 71% of Americans now approve of labor unions. Wow. And again, that's even more true than um, – and so that's the highest number since 1965. Wow. Um, and it's never been that much higher, like in the early 50s and 75. That's when they first started tracking it. So that's one thing. But um, I think people – I have gotten um, comments from people who have experience in unionized workplaces along the lines of what you're saying, that their view is that unions are, like, only there to protect the – the most, um, I don't know, they call them bad workers, people who don't do their job as extensively as these folks do, and they feel that it's like an obstacle to their own progress in the labor market. So, you know, that's not completely wrong. If you're, there is a lot of variation in among workers in any setting. You know, people are not all the same, and some people are going to be more energetic and effortful than others. Um, and so if you have a situation where there's, some job security for everyone, you know, if they make a good faith effort to do what they're supposed to do, which is the case in the unionized workplace, then you're going to see some of that. Um, and until you need it, you might not think the union is all that great in that situation. But when you need it, it's there. And, you know, people do need it more and more yeah. with the arbitrage. So, you know, I, I can see where that comes from. And, of course, there is a history of union corruption, though, as we as you may have noticed, there's a lot of corruption in other parts of our society as well, including among politicians and oh, business no. people and so on. So it's like that's something that's just part of humanity, and it's always going to be there. 
but when it's a union, it gets a lot more attention, right? So there's all that um, in the background, and there are people who are very influenced by that stuff, but again, the, we now have a huge majority that think unions are a good thing. And, and there are other surveys that ask people if they're not in a union now, would they, would they want to be if they had the opportunity and the majority say yes. Um, so it's more that they don't have the opportunity than anything else and, and all the legal obstacles and all the rest of it. Well, I would just say, I would just tell you that I was raised in North New Jersey. So I think that our slogan, city slogan used to be, we're the guys that invented corruption. Uh, I think we had, when I was growing up, I think every mayor in Newark went to jail. Uh, uh, <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. So, and that yeah. was a, you know, that was the local joke is that they built the FBI building next to city hall. And they, you know, and that used to be the joke that they did it as a matter of convenience. So they could march the guys across the street. Um, so yeah, there's a little corruption in politics and, and yeah, whenever you centralize power, they're, they're, you know, you, you unfortunately have that. But, uh, as we know, both know, uh, union workers work hard. Um, and, and when I was non-union kid, workers, you know, I, but anyway, I, I, yeah. I, I, well, I got to tell you that, you know, when I was a kid, I started working full time when I was 14 because I was an orphan. And, and um, um, you know, I had a lot of crappy jobs, a lot of jobs where I was underpaid, a lot of jobs with wage staff, a lot mm-hmm. of uh, uh, things like that. Until I, when I became a teamster, you know, I wasn't a teamster long. I was only... T- Teams of, I think, less than two years, but that was the first job that, you know, where they really um, um, treated me well, you know, gave me benefits and stuff. I like, I used to like to terrorize the local head of the AFL-CIO uh, because I would tell him that when I lied about my age to get my job, I was 17 and I lied to get a truck driver's job, um, uh-huh. which you could do when I was 17. You could say you were 18, and it was hard to prove it. Now with the Internet, I'm sure that it's, yeah. it's much easier. But my first Christmas bonus at 17 included a carton of Camel cigarettes and a bottle of scotch, uh, which, they, <laughs> which, they gave me, which they gave me in the morning before they put me in the truck. Before I got wow. in my truck. That's they, a great yeah, story. Uh, yeah, imagine what... A union lawyer would say today, and say, "Man, you uh, given this, the, a truck driver a, bo- a bottle of booze before he got in his truck." But anyway, it what they they did they did it was a great job in many many respects. So, what is there something that we can do? You talk about the law that interferes with the 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 the, the whole movement. What can we do as legislators? To change that, what legislation is out there that that we should support? Um, so there there is a law that's been passed by the House and is um, deadlocked in the Senate called the Pro Act, um, which would improve the current labor law significantly. I mean, my own view is it probably doesn't go quite far enough, but even that is not, you know, in the cards in the anytime soon. Um, I'm trying to remember what it stands for, and I'm going to tell you in a minute. And yeah, and what what does it say basically? What does it change? What it basically there? does is so it's called protecting the right to organize. That's what the pro part is mm-hmm. um, act, and um, it would you know make some amendments to the existing law to um, prevent employ. Well, here's one example: prevent employers from holding what are called captive audience meetings. I don't know if that term means anything to you or your listeners, but Amazon did this very extensively in when they were fighting the union in both Alabama and Staten Island. A captive audience meeting is when you're you're on your job and the supervisor says to you, oh, we're having a meeting in this room here. You're required to attend. And then what happens in the meeting is somebody in management stands up and tells you all the reasons why you should vote against the union. So that's legal. That's one example. It would ban yeah. those. Um, it would also make it a little easier to, well, so we haven't talked about this, but another problem that's the case now. The the Wagner Act, the NLRA, does require, quote, good faith bargaining once a a union wins an election and gets official recognition. But what does that mean, right? So many times employers find ways to delay, to drag it out, to do what's sometimes called surface bargaining, where they'll have a meeting with the union, but nothing happens because, you know, we have to think about that, you know, this sort of thing. 
so um, there is a effort in this pro act to try to, you know, expedite that process. So stuff like that. Um, like I said, I'm not sure it goes far enough, but it would certainly help. Uh, and and uh, anything we can do, you know, I don't know. Is there anything that we can do to make unions more palatable to uh, employers? I mean, are, <laughs> that's a tough one. I mean, yeah. Look, you know, <laughs> probably not. I mean, we're in a situation where in the the power disparity has grown dramatically between employers and workers. It's not just in the union arena. Think about all those mandatory arbitration um, requirements that workers have to sign away their rights when they get hired or non-disclosure agreements that so many employers are requiring now. I mean, it's gotten to the point where they have, they want and have, you know, not quite a hundred percent, but a huge amount of control over their employees. And, you know, something has to give there. They're not going to give it up voluntarily. The powerful rarely do. Um, So it will require, you know, some kind of movement and some kind of legislation to transform some of that. And, of course, it's all tangled up with other problems like the growth of inequality that we've seen in the last few decades. I mean, you know, I could go on and on. But I do think it's fixable. Just, you know, we got into this mess as a result of, both political decisions and human decisions in other arenas, and we can get out of it that way. But it, we need it, – it's going to be an effort. It's a, it's like turning around a big steamship or something. Not that I've ever yeah, tried well, that, we, but we, <laughs> you know what we, I mean. We consistently quote one of our favorite sons, Frederick Douglass, who said power can seize nothing without a demand. Exactly. Got to have so a that's demand. just as true in this arena. You know, and uh, – uh, well, let me ask you, we're starting to run out of time here. Um, is there anything that, that, that you want to add, something that I should have asked that I didn't ask? Um, you know, I think we pretty much covered it. I, I guess um, I think it would be great if your listeners, you know, paid attention to these issues and tried to, you know, learn learn more about it and, and get into the details. And if, if they have an opportunity to support some of these efforts. That would be great because public support can make a difference in these situations. You know, you especially right. these these employers that people are trying to organize now, they depend on the public's goodwill, right? You might mm-hmm. not go to Starbucks if you see them in a negative light. You might not shop at Amazon, et cetera. So um, there is some leverage there for the rest of us who are not maybe directly involved in these efforts but can support them in other ways. So that's something to think about. Yeah, I know that my kids are more sensitive. Uh, I call them kids. My oldest daughter is almost 30. But uh, they're more sensitive to that than than we were, I think. Uh, Mm -hmm. They don't go to Holly Lobby, Hobby Lobby, whatever that place is. There you go. That's a great example. They they, they don't eat at Chick-fil-A because uh, they think Mm -hmm. the people that own Chick-fil-A don't like gay people. Uh, So, yeah, they, they... they vote with their dollars, and it does that does make a big difference. But can you tell our listening audience where they might go for information? I know that you're a professor in New York City, City University of New York. Is that right? Yes. And and and, and former L, uh, UCLA professor. Uh, is there a place? Is there a website that they can go to get information about what's going on with labor? Well, sure. There are actually quite a few of them. Um, yeah. I would suggest one place is the School of Labor and Urban Studies at CUNY, where I work, um, which has a website, of course. I have my own website, but that's a little more specialized, maybe. Um, it depends on what you want to know, but the and there are, I'm just trying to think if there's any, like, single place that I would recommend. I'm not sure there is. But if you just Google labor union trends, you'll find a million possibilities. There's a mm-hmm. lot out there. Um, So the information is not in short supply. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the, you know, what's involved in the details of organizing, some of it is very inside baseball, like there's, you know, all these arcane laws that nobody understands and so on. I heard a speech by some of the Starbucks organizers, and one of them said, you know, when I first got involved in this, I didn't even know what a labor union was, much less what, you know, I had to Google what is the National Labor Relations Board. Like this stuff is no longer like sort of central to the culture in the way it was say, in the mid-20th century. But, you know, so that's another thing people could do is educate themselves about some of this. Well, let me ask you, is there a place, let's say I want to 
start a union at my uh, the the place I work. Is there a place I can go for advice as as somebody that's just a worker and wants mm-hmm. to wants to start a union but doesn't know where to start? Is there I think that's so funny that you asked that. So one of the places that has developed a lot of um, information along those lines, very accessible on the web, believe it or not, is a magazine that has a web version called Teen Vogue. I kid you not. Teen they Vogue? Have, they answer exactly that question. So if you Google Teen Vogue unions, you'll find, you know, the ABCs of how to organize. Who would have thought oh. a magazine like that would would get into this? Yeah, but it's another I sign mean... of the generational dimension of all this that we were talking about earlier. I remember teen magazines being all about how you do your hair. and, the, and the, Well, and they the may cool have that as well, <laughs> but cool this clothes, is something they've the gotten cool into. Clothes you wear, you know. Yeah. I had a, my older sister used to say to me when I was a hippie, I don't mind long hair. It's just that you look stupid in long hair. And I, I always, always call it conventional. And now I look at pictures of me from the 70s and go, Gosh, I look stupid with long hair. <laughs> what, what, what was I thinking? Well, I've got to tell you, uh, Ruth Milkman, thank you so much for being with us. I think this is a great discussion to have on Labor Day um, weekend. And as as uh, uh, things progress in the labor movement and, and uh, um, things change over time, I hope you'll come back and talk to us again uh, sometime. I'd love uh, to. And I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, we leave the show every week with a song, usually dedicated to the person that was on the show. So this goes out to you, Ruth. This is one oh, of dear. my favorite. Okay. Union, this is one of my favorite union organizing songs. It was written by the legendary Woody Guthrie. Oh, so I think I know what's coming. Yeah. Here's, okay. the New York, here's the New York City Labor Choir with Union Made. Thanks, everybody, and and we'll see you again next week. And thanks again, uh, Ms. Milkman, for, for taking time to be with us today. Here's Union Made. Give the people their right to vote. 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 Give the people their right to vote.